Well, the last time we were in Matthew's gospel a couple of weeks ago, before, before Josh preached for us, we considered Jesus exposing the hypocrisy of the Jewish religious leaders who opposed him. You know, these men who were not interested in finding the truth, but only in saving face and in defusing what they saw as a, as a bomb that was about to blow up their position in the Jewish nation. The Messiah had arrived, and all the signs pointed to him, but he came to a, a rebellious people who were, not in, who were more interested in holding on to their own power than in yielding, to the one, yielding it to the one to whom it belonged, yielding it to Christ. And Jesus had exposed their hypocrisy, as we thought about last week. You know, the, he came to that, remember that fig tree, and there was, there was no fruit on it? even though it looked like it, it should have fruit. And that was a, a sort of a, a living parable of, of the hypocrisy that marked the Jewish leaders. And so Jesus' confrontation with them continues this morning as we're in Matthew 21. If you want to go ahead and turn there, Matthew 21. And you can find this text on page 776 in the Pew Bible this morning, page 776. Now, as we c come to this story this morning, this story is not simply something for us to read and, and marvel at the wisdom and power of God in ages past. This story speaks to us today. It helps remind us of the wisdom of God who works in mysterious ways. It helps us remember that we need not fear when life doesn't make sense. It warns the unbeliever and it, and it comforts those who trust in this God-man, this Messiah, Jesus. It reminds us that if God had it all under control back then, even when it, things like, even when it, even when it looked like things were just completely off the rails, when things looked darkest, when things made the, the least amount of sense, as they ever will in the history of mankind, if God had it all under control back then, then he still has it under control today. And we can find comfort that the unchanging God, even in life's worst nightmares, will give, will give us strength. And those those dark seasons in our life will one day give way to the glorious day of God's victory, the triumph of the God who does all things well. This is true for the believer. <clears throat> and so this morning, perhaps, <clears throat> as you maybe feel trapped in the dense fog of uncertainty, we can calm ourselves with a story such as this one, preaching to our own anxious souls in the words of the old hymn. I love this old, this old hymn. Uh, the song, Be Still My Soul. Be still, my soul. Thy God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul. The waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. If you have your, uh, the text this morning, Matthew 21, we'll be reading in verses 33 through 46 this morning. I'm not going to read it all at once. We're going to take it in sections. 
And this morning we're going to examine the parable that Jesus tells and its meaning. So the parable, the parable's meaning, and then we'll consider how it gives us reason, first of all, to trust, to rejoice, and to warn. To trust, to rejoice, and to warn. So first of all, let's look at this parable that Jesus tells to these uh, Jewish religious leaders who have come to interrogate him and to, to challenge him. We'll begin reading with me in verse 33, and we'll read down to verse 39 for this uh, first point this morning, the parable. The parable of the wicked tenants. Starting in verse 33, Jesus says, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and they beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to, to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. We'll stop there for a moment. Here we have an account of a, of a man of business who worked diligently to turn a, a plot of ground into a vineyard after digging uh, a potentially prosperous business out of the dirt, laying out great effort and expense, equipping it with all of the best from an agricultural perspective, you know, even fencing and a, even a watchtower, uh, seemingly for security purposes. He leased this vineyard out to tenants so these workers, they were to work the vineyard, guarding it from theft by man or by animal, warding off disease in the vines and the leaves, and harvesting the grapes and pressing them into the finest of wine. When at last the sales were final and, and the proceeds were gathered in, they were, they were to receive their, their portion of the profits for their work, and they were also to give the agreed-upon portion to the landowner who'd hired them. That was, the, that was the agreement. But these laborers were crooks, men of greed. And when their boss sent for his share of the profits, verse 35 says, the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. So not only did they steal from their master, but they murdered his, his other servants they're, they're co-workers, so to speak. Now, at this point, we seem to have a storyline for a good Western movie. You know, what will the boss man do? Will he send for the Lone Ranger and Tonto to bring these shady villains to justice? Or maybe he'll ride in himself just when they're least expecting it, guns blazing, and avenge himself on these outlaws. But shockingly, he does something that might strike us as rather foolish. He sends more servants, other servants, more than the first. And somewhat predictably, when these men come to collect, they too are abused and mistreated and killed. 
when will this master learn? These guys had blown their rights. They'd blown their right to a second chance right after the first time. But then, shockingly, not only does the master give them a second chance, but he gives them a third chance. And this time, he sends his own beloved son to them, saying, they will respect my son. Cue the sad, slow, dramatic music at this point. As the son, the son of the master rides off into the sunset to ask the third time politely for the payment. And as the criminals, as they finish washing the blood of their victims off their hands, they spot this lone figure approaching them. And they recognize him. They say, this is the heir, the master's son, who would inherit the vineyard from his father. And they get together and plan. They conspire. And rather than showing the respect that the son was owed, they see an opportunity to get rich. If they can just knock off this young guy like they did the others. Verse 38 says, come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. So this wasn't just an impulsive act. They, this was, this was cold-blooded, premeditated murder. Their goal was to enrich themselves. And this, this son stood in the way of what they were trying to get. Even as Joe has been teaching us in the Sunday school class, this is, this is often how humans operate. When we have certain idols in our hearts, we're living for the things of this world rather than for God, then we will see others as simply tools to either give us what we want or that stand in the way of what we want. And we manipulate others selfishly. And in this case, since the son stood in the way of what they wanted, which was money, they killed him. Now perhaps you're thinking, hold on a minute, who would actually give these guys so many chances? But remember, this is a parable. The details may be fictional, but the point is, a, is to get across a spiritual truth. Who would give people like these crooks so many chances? God. God would and God did and God has and God does. His grace and his patience far out exceed, far surpass our own patience, the patience that we would have with others. Tragically, these villains took the master's patience, took his opportunities for, for second chances to repent, and they hardened themselves in their, in their love of money, in their greed, in their idolatry. Now, this is not a pleasant story, is it? Why, why did Jesus tell this story? Well, the vineyard was a picture of old, in Old Testament scripture, in Isaiah 5, for example, of the nation of Israel. So Jesus, he's talking to a Jewish audience that would have been familiar with the scriptures, and he takes that familiar language and he, he applies it to this, this new story. And so this has to do with Israel and her kingdom. Israel as the, as the vineyard, as she by and large, rejected her king. This, this story has to do with the terrible results of that rejection. And so, Jesus, at other times in his Gospels, 
uh, you know, as he, as, he confronted, um, as he confronted the people who were rejecting him. You know, as their Messiah had finally come and they were just kind of either passively watching him or maybe they, they desired his miracles, but they didn't really take his message seriously. And then finally, when he started to, to challenge them and to convict them of their sin, they started getting a little riled up and hostile and, and plotting to kill him. And Jesus, repeatedly, he would confront, confront his countrymen, his kinsmen, his, his Jewish kinsmen with the fact that what they're, how they're treating him is the pattern that, they've, that their forefathers had treated the prophets in the Old Testament. Many of the prophets had been severely persecuted and killed. And so the, the servants in this parable that the master sends over and over again, those kind of uh, represent the prophets in the Old Testament. And then the master's son, he of course represents Christ coming to, coming to the Jewish people. Well, Jesus, Jesus wants to drive a point home to his audience. And so let's read on. Look at verse 40. Jesus says, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Let's pause there. Jesus here speaks of what kind of fate those villains can expect once they finally have to reckon with the master. And the answer is obvious. Having wasted every chance to receive mercy, they will finally, at last, receive justice. They will be put to a miserable death. It's only to be expected. When Jesus turns what the religious leaders have just said right back on them, out of their own mouths, they, they condemn themselves. They're, out of their own mouths, they, they condemn the actions that they are about to take, even as, even as they were plotting to kill the Son of God. They hadn't done it yet, but they were plotting to do that. It's almost, this, this parable is almost prophetic. It's like it's foretelling, like Jesus is talking to the very ones who are about to do what these wicked tenants do to the master's son in this parable. And out of their own mouths, they admit that people who act in such a way deserve to be put to a miserable death and others to, to take their place. So Jesus, he really condemns them out of their own mouths. He, he gives them some scripture, which we'll talk about in a moment. And then he, he repeats in verse, uh, in verse 43. He says, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, just as they'd said the vineyard will be taken away from those tenants up in verse 41. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people 
producing its fruits. So Jesus was like, he's like announcing their sentence right, right here. Giving them a, a warning, like here is what will happen to you. Well, we've considered the parable. Let's consider its meaning a little more closely. Let's apply, apply its meaning more to ourselves now. And the, this, the message of this parable that applies not just to these, these uh, Jewish leaders to whom Jesus was speaking, but to all of us is this, is that when you oppose the Almighty, when you oppose the Almighty, you just can't win. When you fight against God, you can't win. It's like trying to fight a forest fire with gasoline. That liquid in that red can might look a lot like water, but throwing it on the fire will only get you burned worse and cause the fire to increase. It's like taking refuge, fighting, fighting against God is like taking refuge from a tsunami in a cardboard box on the beach. Once you've climbed in and in the darkness of the box, you may delude yourself into thinking that you're safe because you can no longer see the approaching wave, but it's still coming for you. It's like the, the runaway car that doesn't listen to the, the warnings blared from the pursuing police. You know, the driver pushes pedal to metal and speeds on ahead, ignoring the warning that the bridge is out up ahead. The driver speeds on and for a moment feels the exhilaration of freedom. You know, I'm, I'm escaping. I'm, I'm winning. I, I'm, I'm winning against the law that's pursuing me. I am going to escape them. Not knowing that right around the next curve, where once a bridge was, there's a huge drop-off, and he's only speeding to his own death. This is what it is like to oppose the Almighty. These men may have seemed to prosper for a moment. Think about as they, as they arrested Jesus, as they put him on trial, as they handed him over to the Romans, as they convinced the crowds to crucify him, to call for his death, it, they seemed like they were winning. But their plans were doomed to backfire. Having dug the pit, they themselves would fall into it. Look at verse 42. Jesus says, said to them, Have you never read in scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. So here Jesus, he quotes some Bible to the Bible teachers. He says, have you guys, have you guys ever read the Bible? You know, and where, where it says in Psalm 118, this is where this verse is from. This psalm uses the figure of a, of a rejected stone. It pictures these, these uh, construction workers. They're building a, a building. And they come upon a stone and, it's, and they look at it and they say, oh, this, this isn't good enough to be the, the cornerstone. That, that stone that was the most important uh, piece in the building. That, you know, uh, the joining of the two walls together. And all the rest of the building would kind of, uh, all the other pieces of the building would, would have to take their cues from that cornerstone. But they, they come upon the stone and they reject it. But God takes that rejected stone and makes it the cornerstone, makes it the most important piece of the structure. 
And this, this psalm speaks of a great reversal from shame and rejection to exalted and, and an honored position. And Jesus applies the words prophetically to himself here. You see, he quotes immediately after this, that the, after the Jewish leaders answer his question of what will become of the wicked vineyard workers. Think about the, the vineyard workers. What had they done? The master sent his son to him, offering them another chance, offering them an opportunity. And what do they do? They reject it. They reject the son and they kill the son. But they would not prosper. They would not prevail. Jesus had foretold his own rejection by the priests and leaders. You know, as we thought about in recent weeks, how he predicted to his own disciples that he was going to Jerusalem, but it wasn't going to be the big coronation ceremony that they were expecting. He was going to be rejected even by their own leaders and killed. In the stone rejected, we see Christ rejected and crucified by men. In the stone that was rejected being made the cornerstone, we see Christ raised and exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high. When you oppose the Almighty, you just can't win. These people didn't want Jesus as their Messiah. He didn't measure up to their expectations. But nevertheless, he was the Messiah, and he is the Messiah. And he came and did exactly what he planned to do. And all of the plans of evil men could not throw God's plan off track. In fact, their plans, even in their evil intentions, were part of his plan. Even as they had evil intentions, God was working through it all, bringing about the salvation of sinners. Jesus, he does foretell his rejection, but he, he tells here of his ultimate triumph through that rejection and death. He says right after quoting this about being rejected and, and yet exalted, he says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. In other words, you might be opposing me, you might be rejecting me, but you will not win. What you're doing is going to backfire on you. The kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And then Jesus warns them of, of judgment. He takes up this stone analogy again, and he says in verse 44, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. All right, what's he talking about there? Well, I mean, have you ever been riding a bike or walking along, and all of a sudden, you lose your footing, and next thing you know, you're stumbling over a stone that you didn't account for being there. And the next thing you know, you're, you're face down in the gravel, and your body is, is, is racked with pain. Jesus, over and over again in Scripture, is called a stone of stumbling, because many would stumble over him. People didn't account for him. They didn't understand him. They stumbled over the idea that this man could be the long-awaited king. This man who was crucified on a cross. This man who didn't deliver them from the Roman tyrants. How could this be God's savior? They didn't understand him who came not to be served but to serve and to die on the cross for his enemies. 
He wasn't the Messiah they'd wanted, and so they stumbled over him in rejecting him. And so this, this, uh, that, that's what being you know, stumbling over the stone is getting at. But then we also see the stone crushing. Whoever, whoever the stone lands on, it's going to crush them. What's that talking about? Well, again, Jesus is, is taking for granted that his, his hearers are familiar with the Old Testament. And I, what, he's, what he's alluding to here is, I believe, it's Daniel chapter 2. And there, King Nebuchadnezzar has a, a dream of a great statue representing the kingdoms of this world. And next thing he knows, there's a great stone cut out of a, from a mountain without hands. And it comes and it, it, it crushes the statue on the feet, and it's broken in pieces. And then that stone becomes a, a kingdom that fills the whole, the whole world and, and lasts forever. And so this stone crushing, in, in Nebuchadnezzar's vision, it crushed the kingdoms of this world in judgment and took their place. Similarly, Jesus is, is speaking here and alluding to that. He's saying, like, whenever, whenever I come in judgment... If you are, are still opposing me, you will be crushed under this judgment. So verse 44 is about Jesus' role as, as judge and executioner, as the one who carries out God's justice to the everlasting pain of God's enemies. When you oppose the Almighty, you just can't win. In rejecting Jesus, the Jewish leaders didn't win. They simply got themselves fired and others took their place. By rejecting Jesus, the Jewish leaders and people lost the kingdom of God and it was given instead to all of those who received Jesus in faith. You know, that, that, that people producing its fruit, that, that word people in verse, in verse 43, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. It's fruits. That can also be translated nation. So speaking about like a, a people group, a nation. So who is this nation? Is, is he talking about like the, you know, the, the Ukrainians or something? No, he's, what, who he's talking about here is God's holy nation. Even as we read earlier in the service, 1 Peter 2, that all of those, whatever their nationality or race, if they trust in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, whether Chinese or Greek, they become God's holy nation. They, be, they become citizens of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that will never be shaken. And so this is who Jesus is, is talking about here, the people producing its fruits. And why will they produce its fruits? Unlike these people, because they have the Holy Spirit. Because the, the members of this nation all have God in their hearts. They are, his, they, they are those who are redeemed by his blood, and they and they, because they have the Holy Spirit, they produce the fruit of the Spirit. It's all of those who have been saved by grace through faith. You know, Ephesians 2.10, it speaks of us as Christians, as those who are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right, well, we've considered the parable We've considered the meaning of the parable. It's, it's lesson that if you oppose the Almighty, you can't win. Let's close uh, our final point. Let's consider the reasons this gives us to trust, to rejoice, and to warn. 
This parable and its meaning gives us who believe reasons to trust God and to rejoice in his plan and to warn those who oppose him in his plan. So first of all, it gives us reason to trust. For those who have been reconciled to God through faith in this rejected but resurrected Savior King, we see God's work in the past as reason to trust him for the future. You know, one of the great battles of the Christian life is is just to trust God when things don't make sense. And in those moments, we need to see how God has worked in the past. We need to remember that we are still serving the same God who parted the Red Sea and who turned the the stone that was the the builders rejected into the the cornerstone. You know, the, the rejection and death of Jesus, it shook the disciples right to the foundation. They're their faith was shaken as if by a powerful earthquake. To see the one who had exercised such power to raise the dead, to heal the sick, to feed the multitudes, to see their trusted leader captured, tied up, beaten, tried by these corrupt leaders and then put to death by the pagan Romans. They, they ran, they hid, Peter denied him to protect himself. They watched from a distance as Jesus' life drained away on the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They observed his limp, lifeless corpse, battered, bruised, drained of blood and life, taken down from the cross, laid in a a hole in the ground, in the tomb, and left there. How could this be part of God's plan? Why did this have to happen? God, what are you doing? The corrupt leaders gloated. They still sat in their their rich palaces and their seats of authority. The standard flag of the Roman tyrants still fluttered arrogantly in the breeze above the oppressed Jewish nation. And now their long-awaited king had been shamefully killed by those Roman overlords. Dead as dead can be, gone and buried. And they were alone, and they were afraid. They hid behind closed, locked doors for fear of those that had just put their leader to death that they would come for them next. Now what? How on earth could anything good come from this? Can you relate to their fear this morning? Maybe, maybe you're going through a, a season of life or maybe you've, you've gone through a season of life where you've walked through some difficult stuff and you've wondered, God, why? Why is this happening to me? How could anything good come out of this? This, this story reminds us that this is not the first time that a, a human has asked these questions of God. Listen to the words of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. This is after Jesus has been raised from the dead. He met up with these two travelers on the road. They didn't recognize him. He, he supernaturally kept them from recognizing him at first. But listen to their hopelessness. They said to Jesus, you know, like, haven't you heard what happened? You know, our chief priests and rulers, they delivered him, this, our, our leader, our, our Messiah. They, they delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped 
that he was the one to redeem Israel. Do you, do you hear what they say? They say, they don't say we hope, they say we had hoped. We used to hope that, but no longer, because he's, he's dead, as far as they knew anyways. No more hope. We have lost our hope. Hope is dead, just like the man we once followed. Christian, you, you who believe in the Lord Jesus for your salvation, perhaps you find yourself in this place where you're on the brink of giving up. Perhaps the pain and the loss and the trials have shook you to your very foundation, and the building of your life is cracking and on the verge of collapsing. Perhaps you run, you hide, you lock yourself away, literally or figuratively. Too scared, too low to face the outside world. You feel alone. You feel forsaken. You look at your life and you cry out, God, why? How could this be part of your plan? Why did this have to happen? We need the end of the story, don't we? When we consider the disciples after Good Friday and their fear and hopelessness, we want to, you know, we want to scream to them as we read that story. We want to say, guys, y'all, cheer up. Jesus didn't stay dead. You know, why, why are you guys so low? I mean, he, he told you this was going to happen. But then we ourselves, when we go through trials that God has told us in his word are going to happen, how often do we find ourselves just like the disciples? saying, we had hoped, but it seems as though God has forgotten me. Friend, re remember your weakness. But next, remember God's strength. Remember his wisdom. Remember that Good Friday and, and dead Jesus wasn't the end, even though it seems to be at the time. Wait upon the Lord. Walk by faith and not by sight. You know, whenever a child has great trust for their father, they can, they can see a problem and they can say, you know, I know this is a, a big problem. I know that this or that, you know, maybe, maybe it's an appliance in your house, it's broken, but I know my daddy and I know he can fix anything. So I don't know how he's going to fix it, but I know that he will. I know that he'll, he'll get it back to working. He'll, he'll provide. You know, even when we don't know how God is going to bring resolution, to bring peace, to bring healing. Even when we don't know why he hasn't done it yet, we can trust him. We can trust his character. We can look at his ways in the past and trust him for our future. And because of this, we can rejoice. You know, we can trust, we can rejoice. We can, we, because we trust that God is wiser and stronger than us, we can rejoice in his plan even when we don't know how it's going to work out. We can rejoice that even though like Joseph, everything in life may have seemed to, gone, to have gone wrong, those closest to us may have betrayed us and God has let it all happen on his watch. We feel like a piece of trash that's been thrown out and cast aside, forgotten and forsaken. We can trust that God is always up to more than we realize. As Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 says, he is able to do abundantly more than all that we ask or think. Listen, he, he can do more than you can even imagine. And in the end, we will say, this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Brothers and sisters, I, 
I pray that you can be strengthened in your faith to believe this and so to rejoice, as the word says, in all circumstances. But lastly, this story also calls us to warn. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. You cannot oppose God and win. You will stumble and be broken. You will be crushed under the weight of his wrath. When this stone falls upon you, there will be no escape. Look with me briefly at verses 45 and 46. How did the Pharisees and chief priests respond to Jesus' announcement of, of judgment upon them for their sin? Did they stop and examine themselves and consider if, you know, have we been wrong? Did they take time to reflect and pray and say, Lord, Lord, search my heart. If, I, if I'm in sin, like, show me, God. I want to know. No. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. What a frightening thing it is to pursue sin so long, so hard, that you become hardened in it and your conscience is seared and you become numb to conviction. You know, to have a, to have a healthy fear of hell, a fear of God's wrath, that's a, that's a good thing. If you live in Florida, it's a good thing to have a, a healthy respect for hurricanes so that, so that when the, the storm is approaching, you evacuate. The Bible says in Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But these men, they only feared what people thought of them. Let me point out that the death and resurrection of Jesus didn't merely win a victory for Christ over his human and devilish adversaries. The death and resurrection of Christ won the victory for others, for all of those who look to him for salvation and faith. As the book of Matthew told us from the beginning in chapter one, that Jesus would be a savior who would save his people, not from hard times, not from difficult circumstances, but he would be the Savior who would save his people from their sin. In his dying and his rising, he won the victory over the curse of death that held us in its bondage. And he took away sin guilt, the transgressions that made us deserving of that curse. He took our place, becoming a curse for us so that we could inherit the blessing that he deserves. He is one who, who saves his people from their sins through his death on the cross. And so who are his people? Are you one of his people this morning? How would you know? His people, my friend, are all of those who trust in him. Do you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? Are you trusting not in your own good deeds to be enough to get you into heaven, but are you trusting in Jesus in him as the Savior, in him and his sacrifice, that Jesus paid it all? Do you know that you need a Savior and that only Jesus can rescue you from the wrath to come? If not, I warn you, there is no other way to be saved. I warn you that when the resurrected and exalted Christ comes crashing down upon this earth from heaven above, 
returning to execute God's wrath and justice on sin, then you will be one of his targets. And, there will, and you will have to share in that final defeat of Satan on the losing side because you cannot oppose God and win. I warn you that when this stone falls, he will crush you. I pray that that is not the case for you this morning. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, I pray, I pray that we would have a healthy fear of the Lord, that is the beginning of wisdom, as Proverbs says. Lord, help us, help us to be confident in your plan, Lord, even when we don't know how it's going to work out. We can trust you that you always make a way and that you do all things well. Thank you, Lord, for this great salvation for sinners like us. Sinners who, like, like these chief priests, like these Pharisees, have opposed you, seeking to follow our own hearts and our own ways instead of following you. Lord, thank you for showing us mercy. Thank you for not crushing us immediately, but for giving us grace. If there's anyone here this morning that does not know this grace, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. That they would look to Jesus and live. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.